Holt Perez. Fantastic! What a way to claim your hat trick. Perez picking out. A good ball by Dixon, finding Smith, but Thomas charging through the midfield, Thomas, it's up for grabs now! Hello, everyone. Welcome to the You Are My Arsenal podcast. My name is Jessica, and I'm your host, and you can follow me on Twitter at It's Jessinho. Today, I have Ben, Drew, and Luke with me, and wow, that was a roller coaster. 4-3 on aggregate against Benfica, and we're through to the round of 16. I'm not going to act like I was like I always knew that we were going to go through. I told Drew after Benfica scored their first goal that I really felt nothing. I was kind of numb. And if we win, we win. And if we don't, we don't. Olympiacos last season really changed how I felt about this team and Arteta. That game made me realize that the opposition really didn't have to beat us to win the game because there was always a chance that we would beat ourselves. This game gave me major Olympiacos flashbacks. And after Benfica scored again, I was pretty apathetic about the whole thing. Then, like the leader he is, Tierney resuscitates the tie with a goal assisted by an unlikely source in Willian. And in the 87th minute, Saka steps up from right back with an awesome cross to our talisman. Aubameyang scores, and we hold on to go through. I don't think this result represents progress for Arteta as a manager. There are still major questions for me about his in-game management and substitutions, The individual errors almost cost us again, and the lack of urgency when we needed a goal, for me, was alarming. What we did learn is that we have a couple of really special players who stepped up when the team really needed them. Tierney, Saka, and, of course, Aubameyang. And because of them, Arteta lives to fight another day. And I'm going to bring the guys in. Does anybody want to jump in on that? That was just my little rant. (laughs) I think the first thing I'll say is, uh, as you were saying, that Leicester just gone 1-0 down to uh, to Slavia Prague. <laughs> <laughs> so they could go out and away goals. Um, but they're talking about the game. It did give me like huge Olympiacos vibes, to be honest. Before the game, I thought we'd win quite comfortably. And we're saying to, to Drew and Ben, I was like, I reckon we'll, we'll win comfortably, so probably prepare for a loss. Um, uh, it felt like we controlled most of the game without like any cutting edge. Um, uh, again, as you say individual errors it's just uh the same thing just feels like kind of a reoccurring thing and when we went down and we needed needed two goals i didn't actually have any faith in us to to bring it back which is probably the sad thing i think in previous years um uh, like maybe like even the last um uh, few years of of arson um uh, you'd always bet on arsenal to get um uh, 
you know, to come back. Like um, it was just, it was kind of in the DNA at the time, whereas it feels like at the moment we've kind of lost that. And when we go down, I don't really have any faith that um, we have enough to really kind of bring it back. And yeah, it was a bit, it was lackadaisical in, in a lot of ways. And, and even when we were in control, I thought that it was just like more end to end than it really needed to be. Uh, there was a gamble, I think, Arteta's gambling um, on Aubameyang getting goals in the sense that he's kind of sacrificed a bit of balance to the team, which we'll touch on later. Um, uh, and today, um, it's just about paid off because he's got the two goals. But um, overall, uh, <laughs> you kind of leave just kind of emotionally burnt out in a game that should have been what it felt like uh, a simple win. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, kind of agree, and I can't confirm that Luke said exactly that. So he's not just it's not just in jest. But I think for me, the issues that we saw today, and you could probably say largely over the first leg as well, that this to me is why it's hard to look at this competition as something that we can legitimately go on and win. I think on any given day we have the team that can, but because we're such a jackal and hide side, you never know what we're gonna get from week to week, not just week to week, but half to half, you know, 15 minute period to 15 minute period. That's not the kind of consistent level of performances you need to go on and win, you know, a European competition, be it Champions League or, or Europa League. It's, it's similar when you see it in, in, in international play teams who don't go on and win like the Euro World Cup and Copa America when they're, you know, when they're 20 minutes right here, 15 minutes for the next, you know, I think we could probably say over the course of the entire season, uh, regardless of the competition we're in, we've had that same problem. The same overall issue was we don't know what Arsenal we're going to get. And like Luke just said, you know, at the very, very least, even when things weren't particularly great under Arsene Wenger, we at least knew what we were getting. You know, we at least knew that we did have the power to bring it out, you know, at, at, the, at the death if we needed to. Um, so with us, it's just, I think it just speaks to the fact that no matter the kind of the legwork he's tried to put in since he's come in, we were still, in certain senses, we're still directionless. And for me, I think that's the bigger takeaway from all of this. And um, yeah, it's hard to say that uh, any of us were kind of confident after, you know, um, Benfica pegged him back and then all of a sudden it was, I literally had people tweeting me saying, don't worry about it because we've seen this story before. And we did see the story unfold almost exactly how it usually does. But thankfully, you know, we got that that late that late uh, one that put us up three two. So um, we kind of changed the script just just enough. But my my issue is that will we see the same thing again in the next round, no matter who we play? Because as, as we sit here and and we can kind of joke about Leicester being down, um, the fact is that there's so many big, so many of the bigger sides in this competition right now are getting knocked out. You know, Napoli got knocked out by by Granada, and then Granada, as we just talked about pre-record, Granada aren't exactly doing brilliantly in La Liga, but yet they, they knocked out a, a Napoli side who, over the last maybe three, four, five years, have been very entertaining in an attacking sense. Um, you know, people lot a lot of their plays, so um, it's tricky. And again, I just think there's, there's so many question marks, and, and you can't look at our, our chances with this many question marks and think that you know, a lot of them aren't going to bite us rather than biting somebody else. So, yeah, it's, it's just, it's a tricky one. And, and, and even though we're through, I think a lot of us are still frustrated despite going through. And I think that kind of says it all for me. Yeah, I mean, I largely have to agree with both of you, to be honest. You've summed up the thoughts pretty well, I think. Um, when, we, when, we, when we conceded the second one, I had absolutely no faith in, uh, in us going through. I didn't think the subs were particularly um, 
useful or beneficial to the side. Um, and as Jess said, we've got a couple of brilliant players who managed to pull it out of the fire for us um, and save Arteta from what would probably have been a long inquest from people who even support him quite staunchly, sort of saying, where did it all go so wrong? And with with regards to winning the competition, I think every Arsenal fan now will sort of be looking at tomorrow's draw and saying, you know, we want to avoid this team, this team and that team. But the truth of the matter is it doesn't matter who we get because these mistakes happen against anybody. So, you know, we've got, if we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot, then it doesn't matter whether the other team have one shot on target or 10 shots on target, because at the end of the day, it's never the best attack that wins these sorts of competitions. It's the one with the best defense and that makes the fewest mistakes. Go on, Jess, go. No, I had, I had something to say, but I was just going to quickly say that if you look at uh, Mulder's result against Hoffenheim, they had three shots in, in 90 minutes in the second leg and two on frame. They ended up winning 2-0. They just happened to convert those two chances in Hoffenheim. They just squandered. I think they had 27 or 28 shots that match. Yeah, so they couldn't find the goal. They weren't consistent over, over two legs. And even though, much like when we played Mulder, you would, you would expect a side like Hoffenheim to go through maybe relatively comfortably, but you just you just have to be consistent. Not only consistent, but you have to be lethal in knockout competitions. And, and we were talking about in the first leg that when when Oba missed that sitter, you know, you you had shades of that that thought process that came back from Olympiacos because if you don't take your chances, it doesn't matter, like Ben just said, it doesn't matter how, how well you're performing in the final third, how many chances you're creating, if you if you just can't keep things tight at the back. Decent sides in competitions like this just need a couple of chances to put you away, and sometimes that's all it takes. So for me, and you saw it today, you know, for me, there's just so many questions, and not not that we won't score goals, because I think we will. You know, we did in the group stage. I think we will moving forward, but can we stop goals from happening? You know, I think on our worst days, we're inconsistent in the final third, and and things just don't go right for us at the back. I think we got, to be honest, I think we got lucky today. I, I think. Both sides switched off at key moments, and Benfica, you know, when they went ahead on goals, I think they themselves thought they did enough. You know, I don't think they, they would bank on themselves giving up two goals after they walked two one up on the night. So, um, I think both sides are guilty of making literally the same mistake. Um, but we just happened to, to be just good enough, you know, with with precision. Because if either of those, you know, if that 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 ball to Oba is off by two or three inches it doesn't fall to him and then we're not out of the competition so it took perfection for us to get through and i think again that kind of sums up you do almost have to be perfect to go through a lot of the times and certainly you have to be close to perfect to go on to win so yeah exactly and that's that's really what we've always been talking about in regards to this team is the lack of consistency and the fact that because i mean we're really not good enough as a side to beat the margins you know, it's always really, really close. It's like, you know, an offside call here or a bad call here, or individual error there. That's really the difference between us going through or winning a game or not. And, you know, we did an entire podcast on Danny, um, Danny Ceballos just a couple of days ago. And to see him just kind of have two egregious individual errors in one game just shows you, you know, really where we are. You know, it's just, I know I like Danny Ceballos and everybody makes mistakes, you know, but 
we have to start cutting out those individual errors if we're going to be this kind of team that's trying to build something. We're just not good enough to to beat those margins. And I think, you know, Arteta needs to figure out something or this team needs to come together and figure out a way to, you know, cut out the errors at the very beginning of matches and write, you know, at at the death of a half. You know, that's a lot of times where the goals really come from. And they're never really like, when's the last time we've seen a, a team really just put together a really nice goal against us? A lot of times it's just of our own making. And I think that's why we kind of sit there with that anxiousness is because it's never really about the other team. A lot of times it's just about us. And I'm not really sure where that's that's coming from. You know, people will say like, well, as soon as you cross the white line, it's about the players, you know, but then where does the manager come in here when it when it comes to these individual errors and you know the mistakes I just I don't know I I really am just I can't believe every single game we're talking about some crazy individual error that almost this one almost cost us you know the two almost cost us and it really would have cost Arteta a lot it's another big black mark on his CV that I don't really think he would have came away with you know I I wouldn't have been able to forgive it you know, so I don't know. That's just me. I know it's just a little rambling, but the individual errors are just, they're starting to really pile up and everybody keeps telling me that that's, it's the players, but where does the manager fit in when it comes to, you know, the player's mental state? It cannot just only be the players. Like they have to figure out something. Yeah. And I think you have to look at it from the other side as well, in the sense that um, I mean, like tactically, Arteta can't really do anything about um, Zabios heading a ball into the path of a, of a player that's going right in on goal. But at the same time, um, uh, it was the players that got us back into it as well. Because um, the only reason we came out of that game uh, going through is was Tini scored a goal that we have to be like, be honest and say he had no right to score that goal. Um, I think like most other players, or even like you know, majority of the time, um, a player doesn't have the quality to kind of like push the ball past a player and then just drive it into the bottom corner. It's just, it's not something you can expect a player to do. So it's a massive moment of quality um, that's kind of got us back in the game. And then a huge moment of quality, obviously, from Saka to to secure the game. So it, it comes down to fine margins on both sides. So I, I've, again, I think um, Ben previously mentioned substitutes and substitutes are kind of a growing problem with Arteta at the moment, which I guess is maybe like a, a partial understandable thing because as you said before he's a young manager he's never been a manager before he's going to be learning on the job um but it does seem like because today William came on and I thought he played well but he's made that sub a lot of times and he hasn't played well so you know it gets to a point where you know can you credit him from that sub I'm not sure um I would have thought I mean obviously it's like it's nice to say in hindsight because we won but like I would have thought as soon as he went goal down I've said lack has got to come on and um move Arbor onto the left um, obviously, I love the what happens. Um, let us just go through anyway, but we still have to kind of look at, at this in the sense that when we go down, the reaction sub does tend to be William, and I don't really understand why that is. Um, there is a problem, obviously, with again, like it's, it's as you're saying, it's the mental state. It's that for a lot of the season, it's been you know red card to Jacker, um, mistake for Cedric against Southampton, red card for Gabrielle. Sir Bias's header back to Rafa. Um, but at the end of the day, um, if there's enough of these coming together, then you have to kind of look like like what kind of element of the environment um, in the team is kind of producing these errors. Um, it seems like Arteta is quite um, clear in, in all the instructions to give players, it's even to the, to the line rides, say, like 
that perhaps he gives too much instruction. So how, like how and why these errors happening if he's so kind of clear with what you're saying. Um, I obviously personally am an Arteta fan and obviously I, I can't wait. Um, I have like enthusiasm for the future, but it just, just does feel like every game, it's just like a new drama and a new moment that we're kind of looking back on to say like, why did this happen? And it's just also like the fact, as you said, that we don't win games comprehensively. Um, it just feels like every time we do win, it's fine margins, even if we play well, which like today, I think on the balance of play, um, uh, we were much the better team, but it's still, it's just like, it's fine, fine margins. Um, uh, and, you know, now now we're going into the next game against Leicester with Smith Rowe is going to be tired. Sack is going to be tired. Aubameyang is kind of like come from a few weeks, not trading. He's played like the last four games straight. Um, what centre-back pairing is he going to go with? I, I still think that there's just a lot of questions that uh, we're waiting for some consistency with Arteta, and uh, that's pretty much where I stand on it, to be honest. Is it, is it possible that there's all these questions because it could just be that Arteta has the same questions and he hasn't answered them yet? And um, I mean, a lot of people have kind of mentioned it, and I, I've talked about it too, is that people still forget that he hasn't had a preseason yet. You know, he, he came in for Emery, he had to hit the ground running to right the ship. And then, you know, between, you know, after the restart was completed and, and then this season, he had only a handful of weeks. He's not ever had an actual preseason. So I think for the majority of the season thus far, I think he's been spending so much time still trying to implement what he wants to do when that's usually reserved for other periods during the season, usually in preseason, you know, and, um, with the Tuchel coming into Chelsea as well, it's going to be something similar. He's just trying to make sure Chelsea have a fighting chance to get back into top four, you know, and, and finding a way to get results in the short term. But if he wants to do anything like he's done before at, at Dortmund or Mainz or PSG to an extent, he needs more time to implement that and he's going to need a preseason to do it. So I think you'll see a, a similar issue when, with, with him in, in his role. So for me, I think things like, not knowing the, the best way to, to, to squeak out, you know, making the right changes at the right times, who's good at doing and, and kind of what role coming off the bench or not. I think that's one of those questions. I think it comes from that. I think there's a lot of tactical inconsistencies for the same reason. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's a lot of it might boil down to poor timing, but on, on, on and the fact that he is still young and, and experienced manager overall, but. I still think you have to look at, and, and I, I've been saying this for quite a while, and I know that a lot of people disagree, but I do feel like on the on the strength of it, this team is better than what we have been performing at. You know, um, you know, when I was talking with the Gunnar talk, when I was on Tom's podcast, we were talking about before, teams like Everton and West Ham and Villa are performing at their absolute maximum right now. And I'm, I'm, I know I'm taking it away from the era, but I think it, it, it speaks to the bigger problem. They're, they're performing at over 100%. They're at like 105 or 110%. And it's very hard to keep that up for the duration of an entire season. But for us, it's been we haven't even been remotely close to that. So you do have managers in, in, at those clubs that are getting the – they're on overdrive with them right now. But that's not sustainable. You know, eventually, that, that not only will that come down this season, but it will come down moving forward unless they continue to progress as well. So what is it that we aren't doing? Or what is it that we should be doing um, from a managerial standpoint, for a Teta, for a, for a player standpoint, from a you know a standpoint from maybe Edu as well? There's so many things that we're, we're, we should be doing or that we aren't doing that is enabling us to 
be that inconsistent side that we keep discussing about. And it's not just inconsistent in terms of what we produce on the pitch. It's, it's all over the place. We're inconsistent in the transfer market, right? So usually problems are linked at clubs. It's very rare that clubs perform on the pitch, but don't perform off the pitch at, at board level in terms of how to negotiate the market, how to develop these players. Usually everything is roughly in the same boat. Things are either normally going very well on all fronts or poor on, 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 on all fronts. It's rare that clubs can do some things right and some things not right, but then still produce good football as well. Usually things have to be seamless. So it could be a, it could be a, a bigger thing. We don't really know yet, but um, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I just kind of feel like it's weird because we're asking the same questions week in, week out in a way. Um, and that can get boring, but I don't see it as boring. I, I like solving problems, but this is not a problem I want to try to solve because it feels like none of us really have answers. And the bigger problem is it doesn't seem like Arteta has any answers. And even though he might be young and inexperienced and relatively new, he's been here for over a year now. If he's not finding answers himself, that for me is is the problem. And I think that's why you get performances like you've gotten um, at points this season and um, us just narrowly going through that's going to have our teeth against what's arguably probably the worst season in Benfica's entire history that the, that the putting in at the minute and, and the ganache. So I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not quite sure how to feel about it. I don't know how you guys feel, but it's, yeah, it, it does get taxing at times for sure. I think with, with the teams you've mentioned, you've got to take into account the sort of the summers that they had as well. You're looking at Everton, who bought in Ancelotti around the same time as us bringing in Arteta. So that's always a good yardstick, but they have then gone and signed Alan, Decore, James Rodriguez, you know, they've completely restructured their midfield and they've really bought into what Ancelotti wants to do without any sort of financial parameters, I suppose. Um, and they're getting results for it. And the same can be said to a large extent with Villa. You know, they went and got Ross Barkley, Matty Cash, uh, Bertrand Traore, all of these players that Dean Smith wanted and now they're sort of looking like a proper side. But with Arteta, we've sort of had we've had both bad luck when it comes to signing players and then also the players that we have signed, the Thomas Parties, the Kieran Tinneys from last season. Um, they've sort of been injured. We've had them in and out of the side, and it's very difficult to look at an Arsenal side and say that is the settled eleven because not, not everybody's fit at the same time, which makes it really difficult when you only have sort of 11 or 12 players that you'd want to pick from. Um, and it makes it just sort of, it makes his job a lot harder. And you've got to have some sympathy for him when the games are two, three times a week re repetitively. There's no time for him to sort of take a, take a back seat and think, what can I actually do? It's always, what do I need to do for the next game? Um, so I think that's got that, that that's got to be taken into account. And I think that we're seeing progress within the players. But I think you're right to question whether it's enough progress and whether we're being too. Uh, nice to Arteta because he's got back because he's uh, well liked by Pep and because he's played for Arsenal before. Yeah, those are all really good points, you guys. I do want to drop in some of our um, questions that we got in our DMs today. Um, we're actually going to combine two of the questions because they really go well with each other and just kind of talk about it. So thank you to. I think it's NAF tracks, which is Danny and Ian and your, your at is big Redman. Thank you so much for your questions. And Danny asks, don't you think the system looked much better without a Yeah. He's scoring, but everyone else looks like 
they have to try even harder to make something happen. And Ian asked, what is our best 11 and what is the best system? And for me, you know, going back to those, you know, those games right after lockdown, not what am I saying lockdown after um, the Chelsea game, though, you know, for me, those next like four games were the games where I felt like we looked the most fluid and like, that is the system that Arteta is actually trying to play with Emil Smith Rowe in the 10 role with a lot of um, what it, he had a lot of freedom in that, in that role versus the way that he's playing now on the left-hand side. He looked a little um, isolated over there on the left and um, sock on the right, Lacazette up top and maybe Pepe on the left. To me, that's the the best that we've looked, you know, um, but when Aubameyang comes back into, into the fold, it seems like um, Arteta kind of leans on him because he knows that that's where the goals are going are gonna to come from, you know, which, which would make sense. But today it looked like, for me, and I don't know how you guys feel, but we were lacking a little bit of connectivity. Um, and there was not enough one-touch, kind of one-two passing, quick passing. You know, Emil Smith-Rowe is really good at that. And I feel like the further away ESR is from Sokka, the less you get from Emil Smith-Rowe because they play so well off of each other. And they don't have that immediate pass to the striker to get the ball back and create overloads on the left and the right-hand side. And there just wasn't a lot of fluidity. But for me, I think if you're looking at it on paper, barring Ceballos for party, on paper, the, the lineup that he played today is our best lineup. But I don't necessarily feel like it's the best in terms of results. What do you guys think moving forward? I think ultimately what we are seeing is that maybe we just don't have the right striker. You know, if we had a striker that was kind of had the goal scoring ability of a bombing, but the buildup ability of Lacazette, that's probably what we need. And probably somebody who also wants to get their head on the ball. What do you guys think about the starting lineup? You know, is it is it better for Arteta to kind of push forward with a bombing because he's the goal scorer? Or is it better to get the connectivity and the consistency with the, you know, the one two touch passing and be able to create chances, even if we don't score as many goals? Yeah, I think it is uh, something that hopefully we'll, we'll kind of get some consistency on as the, the next games go on. I, I think right now, and, and I've always been an advocate that squad balance um, uh, is better than uh, than individual players. And I think it's a case at the moment that Arteta is kind of gambling a bit of that balance to try and maximise the goal output of, of Bamiang, which is kind of what I was alluding to before in the sense that um, under Arteta, we've been really reliant on having a, a player that we can kind of like hit back to goal like Lacazette's had a really good season um in the sense that you can hit him in between the lines and he can pop off to other people and just having that presence in that area has been huge for us um with Smith Rowe Odegaard Saka as like three creative players that can play in that role behind the bum yang you're you are kind of taking away a bit of the needs um uh, to hit uh, like for Rang to do the dirty work he doesn't have to do as much back to goal work but the problem that comes with that is is that um, I found that Smith Rowe has been going a bit too wide and a bit too deep. I think that's a tactical thing. I think he's been covering Tierney's runs. He seems to be kind of slotting in close to to uh, to Xhaka than he has been to Odegaard. Odegaard seems to be kind of like similar to what um, Ozil was doing when we played 42 on Arteta last season. Um, Odegaard's kind of slightly more kind of asymmetrically on the left um, over with Saka. Um, I think the problem we've got with this is out of Saka, Odegaard and Smith Rowe, um, the only player I see from those that is going to kind of make decent runs into the box along with Aubameyang would be Smith-Rowe. And he just seems like he's kind of tied a bit too deep. 
Um, I've, in my opinion, our best, uh, our best, most balanced eleven would be kind of similar to what we've been saying, like Lacquer up front, um, Smith Rowe behind him, who can kind of like combine with him, get close to him, run beyond him, and then uh, Saka obviously on the right, and then. Yeah, you know, I think that then we kind of have options depending on game to game because you have Pepe that can play on the left and he can run at players and um, is like good in transition. Ball at the feet maybe isn't as good as a as a running in the box threat. And then you could put Aubameyang on the left who can kind of um, who isn't kind of shackled to being marked by essential defenders and can kind of make the runs out to in which. Um, Players like uh, like Smith Rowe and Lacquer combining create space for him, and like what we see tonight, Saka's like reverse pass to Aubameyang. Like he can still play that pass for Boeing run in from the left. Um, so I do think at the moment it's a bit of a gamble from Arteta. To be honest, I think um, if you kind of play this way, um, uh, in the hopes of, let's say, in my opinion, of maximising Aubameyang's goal output, then he has to get the goals. And as I say, tonight we're lucky he got the goals versus Leeds. He got the goals versus Man City. He was invisible. Um, uh, and then in uh, in the first against Benfica, he got the chances but didn't score them. So there's a big pressure on Aubameyang if he's going to play this role because he's going to be solely um, judged on his goals because he's not there to do anything else on the pitch now. He's not really running the channels. He's not going to show up to play between the lines. And if we take this formation and system going forward, then I have like, I think that it's just a case of like sometimes with strikers, like like when other players on the left, he tracks back a bit more. Um, he has a bit more kind of responsibility. You can judge him a bit more. But like when we again begin back to kind of like a really a kind of nineties football thing, where a striker is going to be judged solely on goals, which is kind of the remit of a Bamiang, then uh, then we're going to get to a point where if he's not getting the goals, and he's really going to come under pressure, and then we're going to see you know different things of uh, of what Bamiang's really made of. And I think he's kind of gone through a lot of that this season. Um, but yeah, that'd be my opinion on what's the best balance eleven. I, I'd imagine that there's got to be some rotation going into the Leicester game because a lot of these players have played like the last three, four games. Um, uh, and as I said before, like um, uh, there's a lot of question marks. And I guess in in this situation, that's understandable. But in general, um, it just it does feel like in terms of like Jess was saying earlier about fluidity, um, uh, we need to kind of get like a season system with um, with players that we used to playing with each other. And I felt like we kind of achieved that when uh, when we had kind of the the lacquer Smith Rowe Saka connection. But at the moment, we're kind of losing that. Yeah, I, I think it's really difficult, isn't it? Because in my book, if if there's a a chance 12, 14 yards out, you want a Bamiang on it. Um, but the problem is he does, as you say, offer very little outside of that. And I think the Smith Rowe point is really, really um, interesting and quite personal to our attack as well, because he tends to work, when, when we've seen him play, he tends to work best sort of in between the lines with the quick one and two touch football, really getting us, you know, up the pitch and getting us in behind. Uh, that's where he does his best work and shunted out to the left. He's got to look inside before he does anything else. And it's quite difficult for him. And I think with Smithrow and Erdegaard in the side, you're looking at two players who basically want to do the same thing and find runners, but you've not really got any runners to find aside from Saka. And there's no real um, sort of additions from deep. So it's quite difficult to sort of say that it's quite difficult to justify both of those two playing in the same team um, on a regular basis. And I think that especially with the form that Pepe was in on the left before Erdogan sort of got bedded into the side and with the Martinelli coming back from injury, there's a lot of options that Arteta could be looking at down that left hand side that might offer more balance to the side than what we've got at the moment. It's um, 
I was thinking about this during the match. I think for me, it's it's hard to, to sit here and speculate. I, I genuinely hate doing it, but it's hard to look at it in another direction for me through the lens that just seems like the minute we secured Odegaard on loan, it's like now we're, once he built up his fitness over the first week or two, because he didn't really play any considerable minutes when he first came in, once he found that level that Arteta wanted from a fitness standpoint, it just seems like now we're, it's almost like in a way that we're pandering to the to the, to the gravitas that came with his name when we brought him in. And for me, that's frustrating because I think you both, you, Ben, and you, look at, you both just mentioned it. And, and we've talked about this before. It's that when things are going well and, and, and just led with it, when, when you had that trio, you had that Lacazette, Saka, and those with no trio that you constantly saw, we, we, were, we were just so much better in terms of getting the back line like, out of their shape. You know the one and two touch football. That's that's very hard to mark against. Um, it's, it's, it's and when it comes off, it's impossible to mark against. Um, that that fluidity in movement, um, the understanding that they had on the pitch, um, and then all of a sudden now Oba came back, and then Odegaard came in, and then all of a sudden that was thrown out the window because it's now it's become about just getting Obama in goals and playing Odegaard as another creative player to hopefully get the goals out of him, but I'm I'm just not seeing it because even though you're playing someone like an Odegaard who who is very technically gifted, who, and he is himself creative. We're not seeing a lot from him. And I think Luke hit the nail on the head when he said that you're seeing more of like a Mizzou type performance from him where he's he's slowed play down quite a bit. He, he does play a lot of good one-two touch football when he, when he can, but it's, it's not been consistent. It's been slowing the play down, trying to build play, and it's really taken the impetus out of using someone like Oba at center forward finding the chances for him. And, and and like I said initially, if either of those balls from Saka to Oba today were fractionally off the mark, he doesn't score either of those goals or maybe he doesn't score with, you know, both of them. And for me, I think that's the fine margin is that I think we're now relying too heavily on again. And we saw that when Oba first came to the club, um, both under Arsene Wenger and then under Unai Emery, it was all about just getting Oba to score goals. And, and while that's great, better teams can suss that out and can easily mark him out of the match. And that's why you see him disappear against City as an example, why he was completely ineffective. And then and we've seen it at other points during his time at the club already where, you know, unless the supply chain behind him is feeding him constantly, he, he, he just, he just doesn't offer much else. And I think that's where I think a lot of people do prefer Lacazette. Um, so for, if you're talking, and I'm with Luke here and, it's all about balance, right? You need multiple ways that you can hurt your opposition on any given day. And I think when you have Oba as your as your center forward, that you, you have to play a certain way and you have to get him on certain certain types of chances, because it's all just about getting him chances. With Lacazette, it's you want you can get him chances, sure, but he can also get you chances. And he alluded to it, and, and um, I forget which match it was after, but he himself said, you know, I, he, that he's just enjoying bringing people around him into the match as well. And it was you're seeing a, a much better, consistent runner form from ESR in terms of what he was bringing to the match. Now it's like almost like he's gone invisible as well, and he's just tasked in a different way. And that's where you have people on social media popping up saying, "Oh, you know, ESR is overrated." It's like, well, he's not. He's he he himself now is on the periphery on a tactical sense, and Pepe just got dropped completely, which I think is nuts because. One of the things for me moving forward has to be if a player is playing well and in form, you you can't drop them. 
you know, because what does that tell the player? You know, um, it, it shouldn't matter that Oba came back and he, and he was ready to play again. We had something that was working quite well and offered dangerous situations on multiple fronts. And for me, I think that was, the, it was just, it was, it was better for me. Um, and who knows, like, I don't know, we'll see what happens against Leicester as, as another example, but, you know, they're good enough to do something like nullify Obama Yang. So we could again another instance where he, he he does nothing all match long, and then we're back to the same question again. But um, yeah, I think for me, when it comes to best eleven or best system, it, it just has to be balanced. You know, it, it, I think it has to be more incisive. I, I think against a side like Benfica, they show that they have the you can get them out of their shape. You can you can really play in behind them. And it was working and all of a sudden we sort of slowed play down and we didn't really go for the throat. And I think that for me is another thing a lot of people can say is that we, we were not, we're not ruthless enough in terms of really going at teams and really making it hard for them to defend. A lot of times we're easy to defend and, and, and we're our own worst enemy in that, in that, in that sense. So um, yeah, for me, it's just, it has to be about balance. And Jess, I know you want to come in, but yeah. Yeah. And I think this is where like, I'm like, okay, Arteta, this is, this is where you're going to have to, you know, learn, you know, he's, he's, he's using resources and a lot of attacking resources, like for the first time in his first job, you know, and he has to figure out how to manage them correctly. So he had something that was working and it's, you know, it didn't work maybe one game like against Aston Villa, you know, but then as soon as that happened and like you, like you said, Drew, a couple of people came into the fold, Aubameyang and Odegaard in particular, and then we, we throw them in there and then it kind of changes the whole, the whole game. And I think the difference was really, we were seeing a faster arsenal, you know, and now we've went back to that real like slow, you know, methodical kind of passing and moving or just passing really because there's a lot of lack of movement. And I really don't think that that serves some of our best players like Emil Smith-Rowe and Saka. They really thrive in quick moving one-two touch. And we've really taken that away from two of our most important players. Now Saka still thrives because he's he's an excellent player, but I think Emil Smith-Rowe is really suffering from that. And now in hindsight that I'm thinking about it because I was thinking like, how do we get Odegaard into this lineup? I'm almost thinking like he needed to work to get into this lineup a little bit more because I don't think he particularly had a good game today. And he's been, like you guys have already said, kind of, I don't know, Ozil-esque, you know, very quiet, you know, in and out of the game, you know, touching on the ball a little bit too much, you know, having him and Danny in there together doesn't really help us move the ball quickly. You know, so Arteta's going to have to figure this out. I don't know if it it would ever be an opportunity for this, but maybe we move Emil Smith-Rowe back into the center, you know, and and put Odegaard on the right, you know, but then do we take Saka out of his position? So, I mean, now Arteta's going to have to figure out, like, does he want to placate certain players? You know, because now he's he's in a press conference talking about how Willian changed the game, you know, and the last thing I want, you know, I know that he was he was good for the assist, but does that mean he's going to get in front of Pepe again? You know, on the left-hand side, I mean, it's just you have to play the players that are actually working and keep them while they're in form. And if players come into the fold, they come off of injuries or they come into the side, they have to work their way into it because now we're in another, I think we're back to square one where we don't know what our best 11 is. We don't know what our best you know system is. We still don't know what we're doing. 
going into the most important stretch in in our season. You know, so he's really going to have to figure this out and not just placate certain players because they they're big names or whatever, but if he's going to try to play a specific system, play the best players in that system and I still believe that that's probably what we saw before in Lacazette, Saka, Emil Smith-Rowe and Pepe in that front four, you know. I don't think he's going to be able to, though, and I kind of want to see what Luke and Ben say. But uh, and again, I think a lot of us have alluded to it. The minute you re-signed Oba to what we re-signed him to, that confirmed that he was going to be key for whatever we were doing, even if he didn't fit maybe the overall ethos that we assume Arteta is going to go with. You can't re-sign him to that deal and then not play him because he himself would get frustrated. And if he signed it, he was going to have guarantees. He was still going to be first choice of the club, most definitely. And then who knows what the fans would think if we re-signed him and then he wasn't the first choice or maybe in and out of the team in on the left rotating with, with Pepe or, or whoever it might be. So I, I just feel like over the last couple of years, we I think we forced our hand in, in down certain alleyways and then, we didn't always necessarily have to, but I think maybe we would have thought we needed to with this. I, I, I really don't know, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think we can all agree though, that balance should be king. Um, playing your best players where they're best, as long as it suits the system is important. And, and someone put this into the, the Yama chat uh, just after the final whistle that since Saka moved to right wing, he has five goals and five assists in eight matches as a right winger. So that sort of speaks for itself. So now you now you have to play him on the right. So if, if, if you take that fact, then there's really only, we really only have two players now that can start on the left. It should be starting on the left and it should be either uh, Oba or Pepe depending. And then you go, but you go back to the Smith Rowe Odegaard question. Um, it's, it's good that we're, we're talking about options. But options are pointless if sometimes the options just don't make sense or don't fit what you're trying to achieve. So that again, that for me comes back to finding the balance. Yeah, I think there's a lot of kind of questions we can ask about um, Aubameyang and and how it kind of links to other things. Because like one of the things that I've uh, been in the mind of is um, uh, was Odegaard signed as kind of like a way to try and connect uh, Aubameyang so he could play as like a central striker because. If you look at Emil Smith Rowe, like who has been fantastic coming in, he's a lot more of, um, of as we said before, a pass move player. Um, he, he's good at combinations rather than kind of that specific final pass. Whereas now you've got Odegaard, which is much more of a final pass player. And you know we've we've said before, kind of has a bit of Ozil about him. And in the last podcast, we were kind of borderline eulogising over him. And I think um, uh, it was like it was good because he has obviously got talent. And um, and I think that. Like he's still finding his range, but there's the scope for him to do good things. But at the same time, um, I do feel sorry for him because I don't think number ten is necessarily his best position. I still think his skill set, um, uh, other than the fact that he tries to find that final passes, I think he's better when he picks up the ball deeper and is able to drive up the pitch, which is something he hasn't had um, uh, the opportunity to do. Because at the moment, you can see like today when David Luiz and Gabriel had the ball, he's he's borderline in line with Aubameyang trying to push the line back. And it, just, it feels to me that that's not the uh, the best use of Odegaard if we're um, trying to plan a future round him for a potential, uh, like to potentially buying him um, in the summer transfer window. Um, and yeah, like I, I can always um, uh, kind of be of the opinion that sometimes players play out of position and um, uh, and it helps the balance of the team. So it's all right. Because I remember Aaron Ramsey played on the right hand side. There was a lot of, of uh, 
of outrage about it, but I thought like you could see the the point of him being there, and you could see the job that he did. Um, but with uh, Smith Rowe uh, playing on the left, it feels more like um, Arteta doesn't want to drop a player that he clearly thinks is very good, um, rather than actually having a plan for him being there. Because so there's, there's no doubt that Smith Rowe can do the job that it feels like he was doing tonight in the sense that he, he was still getting the ball. He was still combining with people. He was covering Tierney when Tierney went beyond him. Like he did like a fine job, but it's just not um, a way to maximize the output of Smith Rowe. Um, uh, it felt like tonight was another problem that we had in the past where players were just kind of maybe a bit too stretched and not in the central areas quite enough. Um, uh, and and one of the kind of the main differences that made us a better team when we got away from that before was, was the fact that Smith Rowe could pick up the ball um, uh, and combine with someone like he'd pop off to Laka, he'd pop off to, to Saka, he'd run beyond them. That would take people out of position. And I feel like we could play Aubameyang on the left and his movement combined with uh, the fact that Lacazette is um, is like like a lot better a hold-up play than he's probably given credit for, that will pull people out of position. But without runners, it's hard to kind of create those spaces. Um, Again, it's, it's the same thing. Like I, we don't, I don't want to go over it too much, but um, I'd be interested to hear what you guys thought about uh, the potential for um, Odegaard being signed for those reasons, because um, it just does feel like we just kind of because Arteta and Edu both kind of said a lot about like we needed number ten, we need set creativity in that central area, and then we signed a player that, so I don't know about your opinions. In my opinion, isn't really a dead cert number ten. It just feels like we bought a very good creative player and we've put him in that position. And ever since then, like he's coming to the team, it feels like we're just kind of testing waters to see how it affects Aubameyang. Yeah, I mean, I think, and feel free to disagree with me if you feel that way, but I think that with Smith Rowe, uh, you have a sort of what, what a lot of people will consider a modern number 10. If you're going to play a number 10, you know, he's hardworking. He doesn't keep a lot of the ball. He's never... You never, you never see him play that like killer ball. He's not playing that eye candy pass three or four times a game, but he's playing that, dirt, you know, the effective pass that might only go five yards, but will suddenly make the next pass in the chain so much easier. Whereas, as you said on the last podcast, I believe with Erdegaard, you get very much Urzel vibes with him, where he's always looking for that slide rule ball, and if he doesn't have the runners either side of him, like with Smith Rowe, for example, dropping further back. If he doesn't have that runner, then it's a lot more difficult for him to sort of decide what to do with it because he finds it, it seems like, and it might just be because he's sort of bedding in, it seems like he's finding it a lot harder to pick those quick one-twos in and around the edge of the box. Um, I think it's quite interesting to see how that will work out in the long run because I think Luke's right. I don't think Erdegaard is a, a, a number 10 that you'd want to play a number 10 going forward in the long run because I think that he's just a bit too static. He works harder than Ozil, sure, but he is just not quite what you want. He's he's, he's not Smith Rowe is, is the simple answer, I think, for that. And I'd, just, I'd be interested to see what you guys saw of that, but that's just my opinion on that. I think uh, with Odegaard, and I, I want to know what everybody says about this, I think we, we, we posed this idea when we were first linked um that it, it could very well be that we might end up going to more of a 4-3-3 because we have Odegaard because he wants to pick up the ball a little bit deeper he wants to drive play i think there were there were a, a couple moments today um i don't remember the timestamps on them but uh, i can visually remember it where he wanted the ball quick he wanted the ball to him faster to foot faster and then he wanted to drive play quickly he didn't want to build play 
like someone like a Mesa Ozil was happy to do and combine and try to drag people away and, and, and find where the space was. He wanted to get the ball up the pitch as quickly as possible. He himself is also more of a direct and incisive player, which is why you could maybe argue that that's why he didn't really suit Real Madrid, who do like to, to build play when they can. Um, when you have players like uh, Tony Cruz and, and, and Luka Modric in the team, you recycle the ball. Um, you look to, to bring your winbacks, uh, uh, get them involved. You know, they run a lot of plays to Casemiro as well. So it's not it's not quick, and that's why I think he's playing his his, his best football. And people would argue it's the the, the, the drop in the standard, but at Heerenveen he was absolutely fantastic. But Heerenveen are, are, are more direct and incisive in their play. They play they play quicker football. Um, they gave him a lot of responsibilities to be the one to really drive, be the one to drive the play. Um, so I think we we could be looking at maybe a scenario like that, um, where maybe you see a midfield three of you know something like Odegaard Partey, and if we go and get uh, an actual out-and-out defensive midfielder, then you have them behind that, and then who knows what happens with kind of Chaka. Not that I think uh, Chaka should be dropped, but um, you could uh, you could argue that that would be a much better balance for a midfield three, and that gives you something close to what maybe you see Man City do when you have um, De Bruyne in that, in that deeper eight, you know, um, alongside maybe like a, a more of a box box feel like Gundogan is because he does get four, but he, he's one of the first ones back on top of their box a lot of the times when, they, when they're out of possession and they have all the Mitchell behind them and, and Rodrigo or, or, or Fernandinho. So we could be seeing something like that as well. Um, and then we don't know what Arteta thinks. Maybe we're looking at his idea of maybe trying to use Emil Smith-Rowe as more of a wide player moving forward. Not, not a pacey winger, but more of a creative winger. Um, again, similar to what maybe you kind of see some other player that uh, people talk about. Phil Foden's kind of that way as well. He's tactically versatile, so whenever he's either um, a strict 10 or he's, he's out on the left or even playing a false nine, it's, it's not directly tied to that position where he's playing. It's more of the responsibility he has when he has the ball and he doesn't have it, and you can maybe see some of that in Smith-Rowe at the moment. So um, again, this is the kind of thing that we don't know what to expect because we don't know what Arteta is trying to do because it seems like every month another idea is recycled and we see something new and we stra- we're straying away from something we were doing before that may or may not have been working. So it's, it's really hard to nail down what we think we're going to do. But um, I think a tactically versatile player like Odegaard is important moving forward, even if we don't bring him in. You, you do need someone who can play multiple roles. And I think that's more of, you know, if you want to be a bigger, bigger side, you need players that can do multiple things that can slot into multiple positions and can be tasked in multiple ways. And if you really look at it, that's what City have and that's what made them or kind of making them so successful this year. You know, Bayern have that as well. Um, and if you're looking at it this year, those are, you know, probably the best two teams in Europe. And there's a reason why you, you see tactical similarities in them and why they're so hard to, to, to play against and, and why they can rely on those players no matter what the task is. So I think that might be something we have to consider. Yeah, I think, you know, I don't think that this is the the end for the idea of Emil Smith-Rowe and Odegaard being in the same side. And like Drew said, I think, you know, I agree that, 
you know, there's a chance that they can play together in an evolved Arsenal side, like when we have different pieces in place. I don't necessarily feel like it's a matter of, you know, those two can't work together. They just need the right pieces around them. I, I can see Emil Smith-Rowe in that wide role. But again, he needs to have people that he can play off of. That's that's his bread and butter is being able to, you know, do really quick one-touch passing. And he doesn't really, he doesn't, he didn't have that with Aubameyang. And I think that that, that decreased his ability to, you know, to be a part of that, a part of that game, you know? So I, I don't think that's the end. You know, I, I do think I like the idea of having all of them out there at once. Um, my eye really focuses in on the striker position. Um, I think that that's some, um, a position that needs to be looked at because I don't think in, you know, we have two strikers that are very different that don't really seem to be fitting the bill, you know, but we have, players that play in behind them that can do good things, you know? So it's just, it's about evolving and those things will come over time. I think Arteta is trying to figure out what's going to help him get points as quickly as possible. So we're seeing, you know, some shifts and then it's also a matter of, I need to manage resources and the fact that we put money into Willian and Aubameyang. So these players have to play. We brought in Odegaard. I've promised him things. So I have to bring him in, you know, and a lot of these things will, I think will get sorted next season, but from now into the end of the season is where he's going to have to make hard decisions to get those points, you know, going towards, you know, the end of the season, you know, You guys, we've already talked for like 50 minutes. You know, that's, we've already. That went way yeah. faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did. It did. We still have a couple more questions though that um, yeah. um, there's there's one from Reese that I think is really interesting, just moving back into the game and, and what that really means for us. And thank you, Reese. Um, Reese Evans, 12. I just want to get that right. So thank you so much for your question. And um, Reese asked, do you think that we were five minutes away from serious questions being asked of Arteta's job? I definitely think so. I mean, I think it's not, it wasn't really a matter of, is he going to get sacked in the morning or anything like that? But I, I feel like a lot of Arteta, you know, positive people, you know, would have, would have, I think how they viewed the project moving forward would have been changed if we had gotten kicked out of the round of 32 two times in a row under Arteta, you know, but not, I don't think he, you know, tomorrow we would have been looking for a new coach or anything like that. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think that it was a huge result for Arteta, to be honest. I don't think he would have been sacked if he lost it. Um, but I do think there's a lot of people that are very kind of finely on the fence in regards to Arteta. I think that even, um, uh, even those that can see that we're slowly improving and can see what he's doing and, and are a fan of his work, um, would also kind of understand that um, uh, we've had a like a really really poor season so far, and if we were to go out like as you say um, uh, in this stage of the competition, a competition that we don't want to be in, because um, uh, we obviously want to be in the Champions League, and to go out so early would be um, uh, would be so terrible. And the fact it happened last season against Olympiacos, team we should have really beat, and it could have happened this season against Benfica, which again was a team we should have beat because they were um, uh, they were poor in both games. Um, uh, and they've had having a poor season. Um, but I think, um, you know, there's a thing that you have to look at in the sense that um, if he was to go, who would come in? Um, would they improve us? Um, but yeah, to answer the, the question, to be honest, I do think that a lot of fans would have maybe like made the jump from one side of the fence to the other side of the fence if we went out this season. Uh, because 
effectively, if we lost this game, then that's any kind of competitive edge to our season is out the window. And I think a lot of people realise that and it's put lots of pressure on this competition um, in the sense that if we were to win it, obviously it'd be amazing if we go back in Champions League, it would kind of really like change the landscape of um, of, of next season because it changed the transfer budget, it changed the kind of players we can look at, it changes the mentality. Um, but at the same time, if we go out of the competition, then you look at what's kind of left for us this year and it just it feels very hollow um, in the sense that we, um, uh, I think, still have good hopes of achieving Europa League football through the league. Like that's that's something that I think is achievable, and it's something something I I think we'll probably do. Um, but you know that's not something that we should necessarily be excited about. It's just kind of like it's just saying that's our position at the moment. That's what we should we should be doing. Um, but like in terms of our kind of overall goal, which is to try and like get close to the top four and then break into top four, it just it feels like this season we've kind of edged away from it and then recently we've kind of kind of had a, like a bit of hope kind of handed to us in the sense that okay now we're actually improving now we found a bit of balance um uh, hopefully we can build on this but i think that we have to stay in because i mean if we go out to a really good team then you know you can't really complain um it's hard because i mean i remember in like in in Wenger's last year when we went out to Atletico, it was almost like 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 how unlucky you have to be to draw Atletico in in like a, a europa semi-final um but yeah, I mean, I, I say I'd be interested to hear everyone else's thoughts. I don't think, um, as like the, the consensus definitely wouldn't have changed, in my opinion, on Arteta in or out. But I think that there would be a lot of question marks about um, about where he can take us if he was to kind of repeat the feat that he also kind of like had last season, which was losing in this stage of the competition. I think there's as much of a problem with sort of the idea of progress. Not as much, not not as much because of the result in this stage of the competition. Like, it's the way that we would have gone out, in that we would have gone out from largely our own making, and all of the promises that Arteta has made to, or, or what fans perceive as promises. You know how we're going to be back to the top, how he's going to work hard and make the team work really hard, and you know trying to eradicate these mistakes. And we're still seeing these mistakes on a semi-regular basis, whether they be red cards or as tonight, uh, the foul on the edge of the box and then the header back uh, that was short for Leno. Um, it's It would be more and more difficult to defend that sort of Arteta's making us a better side on the pitch um, sort of line, especially when you consider all the sort of caveats, I suppose, that Arsenal fans have put up with. Because, I mean, you're looking at freezing out Ozil, who it was sort of assumed from quite a few fans who might have, uh, I suppose, bigger adoration for Ozil than necessarily the club in recent years. Um, so it, it's sort of like they, they, they're they in their Ozil in camp and Arteta seemed to be buying into that. And then all of a sudden he was dropped. Um, Saliba, who came in as the really, really expensive uh, options and hailed as the Mbappe of centre-backs, it was sort of, He's been frozen out, and all of these decisions are accepted, I think, by a lot of Arsenal fans because of trust the process. You know, we're making progress on the pitch, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you don't see that progress in terms of how far we get in competitions, and we're certainly not seeing it in the league form, it's going to be a case of a lot of people will be looking, taking a step back and looking, and sort of saying, "Where is this progress that we're being told is happening, but we can't see in terms of points or in terms of?" Uh, progression. I mean, it's a fair point, bud. And I, I, so something that Jess brought up on on her podcast um, uh, yesterday, um, one of the guests said, you know, 
or, or, or remark that with Unai, you know, he was sacked for being right about where Arteta is, if not maybe a little bit ahead of where Arteta is at the moment, Unai was still sacked. So are we looking at Arteta with, with, with a, a much greater leash with some bit of rose-tinted glasses? I think a lot of people are, um, certainly with certain things. But I think Teresa's question, if, if we got knocked out, um, it's bad because I don't think any of us necessarily would have been surprised and maybe some of us would have probably preferred it because um, I never want us to lose, but I do think us having to have, because we don't trust the depth that we do have, us having to choose which competition to focus on. I feel like putting your eggs in a Naga competition, it, it's tricky because like we've discussed before, it's you can be the better side over two legs. And how many times have we seen the better side over two legs get knocked out? A couple of them just got knocked out less than an hour ago, really. Um, so it's tough. I kind of feel like the league is always a, a bit more of your own destiny in a way. And you, if you get the best result you can every week, that's really what you can do. And inevitably other people will drop points and then you'll, you'll gain ground. But with stuff like this, for like, you know, we could get an absolute horror draw our next round, or we can get gifted, you know, moldy again without a lack of, without, you know, much disrespect them because they just beat Hoffenheim. But um, it's tricky. But if we got knocked out this round, I think for me, the question would have been okay, we're out of Europe now. There's only one focus left in this league. We're out of all the domestic competitions. How do we perform in the league post getting knocked out to the end of the season? If the form didn't improve and we weren't able to come up the table, then I think that question answers itself. I think if form did improve and we magically shot up to say fifth or sixth, fifth or sixth, even if we just missed out on getting guaranteed Europa League, you could say that okay, when he had that singular focus, you know, our, our form was excellent for the rest of the season, and because we won't have Europe next season, maybe we can expect some and, and should expect something similar, you know, in in, in twenty one twenty two because we don't have to worry about Europe because it's just, you know, the league and and, and the cup rotation. So I, I, mean, I know there's a lot of people who would have said there would have been Arteta out if we got knocked out. I know quite a few of them, but um, I think for me, that would be a little bit too early, but I do think if you didn't see that improvement, um, all the matter of the league fixtures, then you could say that maybe you might have to, if you stay with him past the summer, he has a very short lease and you should maybe on the back end be sounding out potential replacements if, you need to decide to pull the trigger on him, you know, early in the following season. But I think his lease should have been immeasurably tighter if we got knocked out. But I don't think it would necessarily deserve to have been sacked that day. But you know, there'd be so many questions after we all recovered from the meltdown, anyway. So, yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I think that's the thing. It's you. We all know that Arteta needs time. You know, uh, if you don't know that, then I don't. I don't. I don't know, but you should know that. I mean, Arteta is a very new manager that's going to need time to be able to implement his, what he needs and and be, be able to bring his his uh, sorry his own players. And he needs at least two transfer windows. I just think this would have, you know, just sparked an unnecessary amount of panic in a fan base that already has a lot of anxiety, you know. And and that's what I really didn't want, you know, because for me, it's like I just. I want Arteta to get to the point where he can actually complete the project because I feel like what he's trying to do, he's trying to do all the right things. He's trying to play football the right way. He loves Arsenal. 
you know, and I want him to be the right man for the job. And I think he's a really good coach, but you know, the results have to add up at some point. And this would just be, like I said, an unnecessary, you know, panic for this fan base. So I'm glad that he got to the next round and, you know, hopefully he can make a deep run in this, in this competition. And if he doesn't, hopefully he can improve the league form enough to kind of make up for that, you know, because I think for this season, because we don't have a lot of, um, I don't want to say we don't have a lot to play for, but you know, we're not really, it looks kind of unlikely that we'll be able to do anything in the league and making it to the very end of this competition is going to be rough. You know, that it's all about optics, right? You know, we don't want to be out of the round um, in round 32 against a really poor Benfica side and in 10th place, you know, but if you can climb up to seventh place and you got to the semifinals, the optics of that are a lot better for Arteta going into the summer, getting his preseason and all that kind of stuff. So that's all I really want for him because I do think he's trying to do the right things. Now, all the games are over and we have a confirmed list of everybody that made it into the last 16. So I'll just go over the list and maybe we can do a little, you know, who we do want to get or who we don't want to get. So Tottenham is still in it. Ajax, us, Granada, Rangers, Shakhtar Donetsk, Molda, Villarreal, Young Boys, Dynamo Kiev, Dynamo Zagreb, Slavia Prague, Manchester United, Milan, Olympiacos, and Roma. So who wants to start? Who wants to start? I'll start. I'm going to make fun of you first. On I don't care. Just, just not reading the list as it was. You decided to just jumble it up and read it in a different order, and I thought that was hysterical. I used the one I used the one on my phone. That's why. Not the one that you put in the chat. It's just like. But does it just, matter? But does it matter? Yes. I have to make fun of you once a podcast. This is a day we're we'll Okay. Well, you could make fun of me about how I pronounce Shakhtar Donetsk. No, that, that was too easy, though. Donetsk. <laughs> Donetsk. No, it's, um, it's, it's tough because you can't say this is a gimme in knockout competitions, and that's something that we, we've kind of mentioned a couple of times, but there are a few teams that you look at for base value and say, I'd rather this team than the other. Like, everyone would look at this list and say, well, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather young boys or I'd rather – you know, Molda or maybe Granada, but those are teams that knocked out teams that should have beat them. You know, Young Boys knocked out Leverkusen, uh, Molda knocked out Hoffenheim, and then Granada knocked out um, Napoli. You know, so and those are probably three teams, the ones that they did knock out that we wouldn't have wanted. So if we wouldn't have wanted to come up against maybe a Leverkusen in form or a Hoffenheim in form or even a Napoli in form, do we really want to knock out teams that knocked out good teams? It's, it's, it's tricky for me. Um, I would, it's almost like I would, I would rather play a side we know about. I would, I'd rather get matched up against a Premier League side. I honestly would, because you know where you're getting, you know, there's, you know how to prepare for them. Um, it's very hard to, to, to come up with a, with a shock in terms of, um, what, what they're, what they're capable of. And obviously the, the inverse is the same. They know what they're getting when they play us, but I'd rather, you know, I, that's what I would rather do. Um, person. So, I mean, I would probably rather play Spurs, <laughs> not just for the banter, but I just kind of feel like it's easier to prepare for a side, you know, to expect. Like, we we don't know what, what to expect from, say, Ajax or, or Shakhtar or, uh, or Roma. And 
and everyone's saying, "Oh, play Rangers because they're 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 coming from Scotland." Rangers are putting together probably the one the best, if not the best, football seasons in, in, in Scottish football in, in my lifetime. You know, uh, they're playing a brand of football under under Gerard that could literally make them one of the probably the dark horse of the competition at the moment. So none of those teams are going to be easy, easy, really. So that's why I'd rather play a team we know how to prepare for. So give me Spurs and. And I'd rather have a, a double you know, North London derby in, in Colorado Day for me. So. It'd be a triple North London derby, wouldn't it? That's right. Yes, that's right. It would. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, looking at the list, there's a lot of teams that I'd say we should win. But I mean, even though the name's big, even today, like the Benfica team that we've uh, started over the last two legs, I'd say we should win. And we made like a real trouble of it. Um, you know, you have teams like it's, it's impossible. Like if, if we get matched against like a like you know a young boys or a Dynamo Kiev, then obviously like great because because effectively like you'd hope that you better comfortably win that in the first leg and then rest people for the second leg. But and like and this this probably will sound a little bit mental. Um, but I've I've spoiled our for a long time, so I don't feel like anything could phase me now. Um, I'd prefer to get Olympiakos just because I think good teams um are kind of made and broken in kind of like. Uh, these positions or these games of kind of like a lot of kind of like emotional um, in the sense that like last season when we got knocked out by Olympiacos effectively ended our season um, in terms of trying to get into the Champions League and obviously that was a, a big thing for these players I think I saw in the post-match press conference the uh, the interviewer kind of mentioned that Bamiang um, you um, you missed a chance late on against Olympiacos that would put you through but today you scored a late chance to put you through and he said yeah that was in my head so I still think these players are kind of thinking about that kind of thing at the moment it's still like kind of a level of um of hurt that's come from the last few seasons. And I think if we could if we did get drawn of Olympiacos and we're able to kind of dispatch them um comfortably over two legs, then that's kind of like a really freeing thing it could be for the team that maybe we could kind of then springboard off and get a bit of momentum. Um if I'm being honest, I haven't watched an Olympiacos play this season. I don't know if they look any better or any worse than they did last season. Last season I thought they played real well from us uh, in both legs to be honest. Um yeah I think that'd be my pick to be honest. I think um sometimes you know if you want to if you want to kind of like get the best out of the team, you've got to put them in uncomfortable positions, uncomfortable situations outside the comfort zone. And I think having to to prove themselves to uh, to a team that we effectively went out to last season, I think that would be good for them. I, I think you have you have a lot of faith in our uh, mental fortitude, which which is impressive. I'm not sure I could hack that again as a fan. <laughs> I don't think I can watch that again. <laughs> Um, but look, looking at all of those, looking at all of those, I'm looking through them and sort of thinking, no, 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 no. I don't really see one that stands out where I think, you know what, I'd be quite happy with that. Um, both for them being good teams, so sort of Rangers, as you mentioned, Man United, Roma, Milan, and then being teams that tend to win big games especially with sort of management, they've got some Spurs uh, come into that. And then on top of that, you've got sort of the narrative ones, I suppose, in Villarreal and Olympiacos, who would both be, if we went out to those, you you know, you'd have huge questions asked. Although I suppose it would be progress getting knocked out by Olympiacos in the round of 16 instead of the 32. Um, it's just sort of, they all look quite difficult. I don't know whether that's me being a pessimist about how good we are, but judging from the last two legs against Benfica. I don't know who I'd want. Probably one of the, I guess maybe one of the Dynamo sides, 
Zagreb or Dynamo Kiev, but I think that's mainly because I don't know a lot about them. Um, so I can sort of assume that they're not as high quality this season as a lot of the other teams that are in there that look quite good. So they're probably my picks. Yeah, so, I mean, let I, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, right? You know, when I'm looking at these teams, I'm like, does it really matter? You know, we just we have to show up and it depends on what Arsenal shows up. I think the best Arsenal can beat any of these teams, but the Arsenal that sometimes shows up is a team that could lose to any of these teams. So, you know, um, I don't really have a particular pick um, for who I'd want to play, but I'm going to give you my pick for who I think we're going to play. And I would not be surprised if we got Villarreal. I would not be surprised if we got Villarreal and we play Unai Emery in the round of 16. At some point, we will meet up with them. But you guys, this has been an awesome podcast. I'm glad that we were able to talk about a win and our, you know, us moving into the round of 16. Thank you to Reese, Ian, and Danny for your questions. We really appreciate it. And thank you to all of the listeners. You know, we really enjoy recording these and we hope that you're enjoying listening to them. If there's anything that we can do to make your, you know, your listening experience better, please let us know. And thank you, Drew, Luke, and Ben for being here. You guys have been awesome as well. And this has been the You Are My Arsenal podcast. And we'll see you guys on the next one. Bye, everyone. Couldn't help Pires. Fantastic. What a way to claim your hat-trick. Spinner speaking out. Ben Campbell, ben Campbell with a chance and he's taken it. Brilliant goal. Ten minutes gone. Dennis Bergkamp gives Arsenal the lead. There's a ring. Arsenal have won it. Arsenal have won the game. Nobody struck that way. Ramsey with the run from midfield. Abamyang! Beautifully done. And here's a chance for Arsenal. And taps it home. Mesut Ozil. Great start for the Gunners. A good ball by Dixon. Finding Smith. But Thomas charging through the midfield. Thomas, it's up for grabs now. Thomas. <laughs>